0: This is Marcy Trent-Long. Welcome to Sustainable Asia. 3 Billion is a four-part podcast series about the seafood trade in Hong Kong, China, and Asia. It's made in collaboration with China Dialogue and sponsored by Swire Group Charitable Trust.
1: Hong Kong is a uh, like it, it's like a small city, it's very small, but we consume a lot of seafood. And per capita speaking, we are ranking the second in the Asia and the eighth in the world. We're in Hong Kong, where every year 3
0: billion US dollars is made in the seafood trade, making it a true global hub. In the previous episode, I learned how important seafood is to Asian cuisine and how reef fish, shark, and other possibly endangered species are captured off the coast of countries rich in ocean wildlife, but poor in oversight capacity. The captured fish are brought back to the free port of Hong Kong to be distributed to seafood restaurants and markets throughout China and Asia. To find the best solution to this illegal trafficking of marine wildlife, I wanted to start with ongoing campaigns in Hong Kong and China that are successfully changing consumer attitudes and making people aware of endangered fish. I invited Gloria Lai, Senior Program Officer of WWF Hong Kong, over to the studio to talk about WWF Hong Kong's sustainable seafood
1: campaign. She's been working for quite a while with seafood suppliers. In my first few years of my career life, I I worked in caterers. So I work in different uh, brands of the restaurant, like fast food chains, so I know how much impact we can make for restaurants in the environment issues. When Gloria started working on ocean sustainability at
0: WWF in 2015, the NGO already had a long history of raising awareness on sustainable seafood.
1: We started Seafood Choice Initiative since 2007, and that moment we launched our own seafood guide. So in the seafood guide, we have more than 70 seafood items that are more um, common in Hong Kong market. Gloria
0: and her team divided these 70 seafood items into three categories. A red list for unsustainable seafood, which you really should avoid. A yellow list for seafood that you shouldn't eat too often. And a green list for seafood that's sustainable. Sustainable seafood guides, like the one by WWF Hong Kong, are such a great little tool to make the right decision when you're doing groceries or ordering food at a restaurant.
1: If you ask the restaurants, uh, you ask the waiters, uh, what what fish is it or, or uh, where is it come from? Then if more people ask that questions, they will start to know it is very important for them. So we also encourage people to ask. On WWF's red list are the usual suspects, Chilean
0: sea bass, which is just a more appetizing name for the overfished Patagonian toothfish, and bluefin tuna. Then there's a whole bunch of groupers, the colorful reef fish that Yvonne Sadovi mentioned in the previous episode. One species that always stands out to me is the humphead wrasse, or Napoleon fish a big, odd-looking fish that's an aquarium favorite and also happens to be Yvonne's favorite of all the reef fish she's studied. Now, the
2: Napoleon fish, if you if ever you should look at a picture of one, you would see that it has incredibly complex facial markings. In fact, one of the names of this fish is the
0: Maori ras, because after the, the kind of tattoos and things of the Maori people. That's Yvonne Sadovi. She's a professor at the University of Hong Kong, where she studies the trade in live reef fish. You can see this fish in quite a lot of seafood restaurants here in Hong Kong. Ever dedicated to her cause, Yvonne herself actually helped the Indonesian government come up with a legal export quota of 2,000 Napoleon fish per year. As long as no more than 2,000 fish are caught annually, the population can be stable and the fishery sustainable. So why is it on WWF's red list?
2: I happened to pass a, a, a restaurant coming to work, and I noticed only one fish ever in the restaurant. And this went on for weeks, and I, it didn't make sense because I know that these fish are only in these restaurants for a few weeks, if that, and they die. They don't live very well in the restaurants. But there's always a similar size fish in the restaurant, for actually even for a couple of months. So this kind of piqued my interest, so I started taking photos and um, then I started looking at the face. I was always fascinated by its face, <laughs> weird as that might sound, but I've always fascinated by its beautiful markings. So that did attract my attention. And I noticed that the that the markings were different, and I realized that they
0: were laundering this fish. Fish laundering, just when you think you've heard it all. Napoleon fish, let's say one of them exits uh, Indonesia.
2: It has an export permit. It's legal. It comes into Hong Kong. It has an import permit. Permit. It's legal. It goes into a shop and the shop has a possession permit, which it must have, and that must be publicly visible. It's legal. It sells that one fish. It's got no more fish. So illegal fish comes in. It puts illegal fish in the place of legal fish. Who's going to know unless you actually have tagged the fish? And that's actually probably how a lot of the illegal trade is, is conducted for this fish, Napoleon in Hong Kong.
0: So once fishermen on the Indonesian coast hit that quota of 2,000 fish, they keep smuggling Napoleon fish into Hong Kong. As soon as the fish reaches a Hong Kong fish tank, the authorities have no way of telling whether that specific fish was over the quota and illegally caught. Luckily, the Napoleon fish and its beautiful eye markings can help us a long way in uncovering these laundering schemes. Together with a local tech startup and her HKU students, Yvonne has come up with an app that can help you detect when a fish is sold under a reused license. So you you take a picture, it has the record of the
2: the shop, the the date, etc. And then you go back, say, two weeks later, you take a picture again. Is it the same fish or not? You use our little app (laughs) to show that that is not the same. It's his sister. You can actually do comparisons shop by shop because each shop is supposed to have its finite number of legally possessed fish. These are all the kinds of things that we can do and we can help as a community working with the government to try to make sure at least we can keep hong kong clean and i think these joint kind of efforts uh, hopefully will be quite valuable not only in detecting illegal trade but also helping to raise awareness because we talk about them and they attract attention and students are excited to do this kind of work
0: A short break to thank our sponsor, Swire Group Charitable Trust, creating positive change in education, marine, and arts through supporting registered nonprofit organizations, primarily in Hong Kong and mainland China. Equipped with a seafood guide by WWF and an HKU app, To help uncover fish laundering, the conscious consumer can do a lot to incentivize restaurants to make sustainable choices. WWF's Gloria Lai and Bloom Association's Stan Shea are approaching caterers to see if
1: sustainable seafood can become more readily available. So in Hong Kong, we mainly work with suppliers and also supermarkets, restaurants, hotels to ask them to source sustainable seafood. For restaurants or hotels, uh, we have two different strategies. The first one is to ask them to launch an ocean-friendly menu. We also ask them to list out the seafood name, the origin, and the harvest method. And then the other one is for some hotel groups, they have a global commitment so we help them to assess all items like, oh, this is green and this is yellow, this is red. And then after that, we will uh, encourage them to set up a commitment. By a certain period of time, uh, you could achieve certain amount of your items will be sustainable. So these are two strategies. The fact that hotels and restaurants in Asia are open to
0: these kinds of initiatives shows what a long way sustainable thinking has come here. Stan has observed this progress firsthand.
3: I remember 10 years ago, I went to a hotel to do... A seminar on marine conservation the person who was talking to me is from the hygiene department and i was like ah why is the hygiene department doing the environmental stuff and then she explained because there wasn't any position in the hotel to actually have a department dedicated on environmental related issues at that time that was 2009.
0: five years later stan went back to that hotel where previously environmental issues were relegated to the hygiene department Now, this hotel has a proper policy manager for corporate social responsibility, or CSR.
3: Hong Kong, we have um, people start talking about sustainability. People start understanding and talking about a lot on CSR policy. I think China is building up. They have a lot of big company now also talking about CSR policy and online platform like Alibaba announced do not sell any endangered like shark fins in their website, which is a good start.
0: Demand in Asia for endangered marine species is mostly driven by the luxury seafood business, where smart consumer choices can make a big difference. But what about the other market for endangered species, traditional Chinese medicine? To those outside of China, the lack of scientific proof raises questions about this practice, and the World Health Organization recently suffered a tsunami of criticism over its decision to recognize traditional Chinese medicine, or TCM, as a valid means of treating health issues. One of the problems with TCM is that it's known to use endangered species in its treatments— But I was fortunate enough to spend some time with two Chinese experts who are working on solutions. Evan Sun, a scientist at World Animal Protection, and Dr. Zhang Yanbo, principal lecturer at the School of Chinese Medicine of the
4: University of Hong Kong. In our school, we use scientific methods to test the efficacy of Chinese medicine. Yembo came to Hong Kong from the north
0: of China, where old beliefs in natural medicine were a part of daily life.
4: My mother and father used Chinese medicine to treat us. For example, if I fell ill and felt pain in my joints, my mother would take some leaves from the mulberry tree outside our front door and make soup with it. Only later, when I was studying TCM, I found out that Mulberry is a part of Chinese medicine. When I have a mouth sore, my mother would soak chrysanthemum in water and make me chew on it. Or when my father would take us for a walk through the forest, he would point out two herbs along the way and explain their effects on human body. Many of these health benefits were discovered because these herbs and animals were part of our cuisine. Over thousands of years, Chinese doctors have studied their properties and found the most effective ingredients. All these knowledge were accumulated and written down in books like The Yellow Emperor's Classic of Internal Medicine or The Classic of Herbal Medicine. These books didn't just preserve ancient medicinal knowledge, but also the ancient culture of the Chinese people. That's why Chinese medicine is so closely related to Chinese culture and seen as a treasure of the Chinese nation. But Yenbo
0: and other scholars of traditional Chinese medicine are well aware that, just like with seafood, ancient traditions can easily disappear when their practice depletes the natural resources they're founded
4: on. Now, because, the food, many... because the supply is being drained, people lose access to common traditional medicines. Where I lived, the shellfish would pile up by the coastline. Now, people need to go deeper and deeper to find them. It shows that the ocean is ill, and we really need to protect it. Evan Sun explained to me how,
0: paradoxically, modern scientific processes can help TCM survive.
5: I'm Evan Sun. I work with World Animal Protection China. I work with a wildlife campaign and mainly focus on the wildlife used in traditional medicine. TCM has a long tradition, it's very important to Chinese society and also uh, could be, uh, you know, play a big role in the future if this industry can embrace the modern technology. If the industry wants to develop in a sustainable way, they have to find the substitutes because the raw material from the endangered species will be not available. So that's good also good for the TSM industry to, to have a better development.
0: By identifying which exact components of the herbal or animal ingredient have the medicinal properties, Chinese doctors can replace the endangered species in the preparation and take away the demand for illegal wildlife trade. And this is exactly what Yembo and her team are working on. In this case, they're eliminating the endangered seahorse from a
4: traditional Chinese aphrodisiac. We looked at all the compounds in the medicine, removed the seahorse, and tested its effectiveness. We left the other ingredients as they were and found that the medicine was equally efficient. The same has been done with bear bile which is also a part of Chinese medicine. We did a study where we replaced the bile with three types of herbs, and we found that it was a successful alternative.
0: I find it so interesting that professors in labs are working on these old traditional ways of healing and trying to make them sustainable again. But I can imagine that it will be quite hard for people who grew up with the belief that dried seahorse improves male fertility, to then accept that an herbal substitute can do the trick.
5: So in terms of awareness, people in China, you know, have more knowledge about the endangered species, the issue of endangered species. Less and less endangered uh, species uh, was used in traditional medicine.
4: I think that over time, these practices will change. Education levels used to be very low in China. Chinese medicine was often just practiced by family members. Or there were doctors who hadn't actually studied anything. Now, the vast majority of practitioners in Chinese medicine are highly educated. They will be open to these new ideas.
5: There will be a day we don't need to use endangered species in the traditional medicine.
0: We've now looked at the two drivers of demand for the illegal trade in marine species in China, luxury seafood and traditional Chinese medicine. I tend to be hopeful that seafood guides can motivate consumers to think twice about their dinner. The pressure on hotels and companies through CSR policy can change the species of seafood on offer. And that higher education levels and the discovery of herbal alternatives can eliminate endangered species from traditional Chinese medicinal recipes.
2: I think a lot of people, I would even say a majority of people who, if they realized that by purchasing certain species, you contribute to their conservation risk, they would probably choose something else. I really, I mean, I think it will happen as it did. to to some extent with shark fin however I think there's a a couple of things one is there is always going to be a minority as there is in in anything in society who will not care who do not care who will never care and the trouble is with threatened species there aren't that many animals left so it will only take a very small percentage who who do not care to drive the species further down so that is one issue and that's why it can't just be the consumer that solves the problem it has to be a systemic change we need in hong kong to make sure that there's much more of a focus on on traceability and sustainable trade let's get rid of that smuggling and that grey trade that goes across the border between hong kong and mainland china it's an open secret and it's every day all the time and this makes it very difficult to have a trade chain which is completely transparent the traders themselves have to be brought to account for what they're doing and what they're getting profits from. So this is the other part, the consumer part, but there's a whole other set of things that need to be addressed.
0: We can't just rely on consumers to bring about the broad and immediate change that's needed. Let's look at what regulation is in place to catch these seafood smugglers. We'll hear about the struggle to get the ugly sea cucumber listed as endangered and why you can never trust Japanese fisheries to stick to the rules. Next, on episode three of 3 Billion. 3 Billion is produced by me, Marcy Trent Long, in collaboration with China Dialogue. The series is written and edited by Sam Columby and mixed by Chris Wood. Thanks to our sponsor, Swire Group Charitable Trust. Additional thanks to Zhang Chun and Ma Tianjie at China Dialogue Beijing, Josie Chan for translation, and our voiceover, Crystal Wu. Interviews were recorded at the Journalism and Media School of the University of Hong Kong. The intro and outro music is made from repurposed and recovered waste items by Alexander Mobison. Learn more about his music at Kalelover.net.